everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 27, Fedora 16, recorded November 20th, 2011. As promised, this week we'll break down and dissect and other words that aren't coming to me, uh, the newest version of Fedora, uh, version 16. And uh, I doubt we'll have a whole lot to say, good or bad, because it's just kind of exactly like 15, but we'll talk about that a little later on. And joining me this week, we have Mr. Chris Neves, the command line godfather and the Fedora ambassador among us. Hello, Chris. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, wow. dweebs and geeks. You slipped in the whole radio <laughs> DJ mode there. I did. It was kind of fun. Hi, guys and girls. <laughs> I'm going to be spinning some drags of wax. Uh, <laughs> and with us also is the gooey kid, Mr. Seth Anderson. Hey, Seth. Hey, everybody, and welcome to all of the graphical interface users out there. <laughs> <laughs> we need to get him some gunshots when he comes in. The gooey <laughs> kid. <you> go. <laughs> or like the sound of a saloon door opening. Yeah. There. I'm yeah. looking for the man who shot my start bar. <laughs> <laughs> then our noob in residence isn't with us we, this week, Mr. Aaron Butler. Um, he he is celebrating his 18th year of marriage, and because he wanted 19, he decided he'd be with his wife today instead of us. And yeah, frankly, happy I anniversary, think, Aaron. I don't think that was a bad idea. No, it's we'll we'll give him this one maybe next year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I wanted to start off saying it's Thanksgiving week. In fact, the day this comes out is the day before Thanksgiving. If your turkey is not thawed yet, you're in big, big trouble. Uh, but uh, by this point, by the time you're listening to this, I will probably be preparing two or maybe even three turkeys because people bring them to me and say, will you cook my turkey for me? Um, and I hope they give you a nice little bonus for doing that. <laughs> well, it depends. I, I, I charge people uh, if they're not family, and I do it for free for family. Seth, you're welcome to come on over, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to probably be smoking the bird uh, this year. The, the hardest thing about it, though, is getting the rolling papers wrapped around it nice and tight. But hmm. bunch, smoking. Well, anyway. Yeah. It takes forever with that lighter. I bet. <laughs> So I want no, to use a blowtorch. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're a U.S. listener, yeah, happy Thanksgiving. If you're a Canadian listener, that was a month ago. If you're in the in Europe, you don't even know what we're talking about. Uh, but it's the day where we get together, and it's a national day of thanks. Uh, thanks to the uh, non-specific deity of choice for whatever blessings slash coincidences that have positively influenced your life <laughs> trying to be as politically correct as possible because you know that's me i'm all about being politically correct sure. uh, and non-offensive and, and never saying everyday political correctness that's episode right. 27 <laughs> now uh, <laughs> if you've listened to one of our newest shows the periodic table you know i am lying uh, <laughs> but i would like to encourage you to do that if you haven't uh, done that check it out uh, it's on our on our website, elementopi.com. The periodic table, episode two, is going to drop in about four hours from this time of recording. And uh, it was a lot of fun. Once again, we were uh, irreverent and insulted uh, many people across the board, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's always great fun to insult people. Yeah, Chris was with us this time around. What did you think of it, Chris? It was fun. It was a lot of fun. I think it would have been funner to be around for the first one. There's a little bit more... Uh, 
finger pointing and eye gouging in the first one, but well, uh, this was, one was fun too. It was kind of a slow news week. We didn't have a lot to get upset about, but uh, I tried. I tried to gouge Eric. I mentioned <laughs> Eric Vick. Uh, I mean Mike Vick a few times, but it just didn't work. He was too late uh, back. <laughs> I guess he'd had a couple extra beers uh, yesterday, or or maybe not enough. I, I'm not sure which how how that went. Yeah, it's hard to say. <laughs> um, what's the weather like? in montana right now chris yeah it's it's getting a little a little uh brisk as i like to call it i think uh, we're sitting at about 17 fahrenheit so as they say in texas it's not the heat it's the humidity (laughs) well around here yeah if if you got humidity and it's 17 it's not too bad but when you have the zero humidity and it's 17 then you're cold well at 17 degrees isn't humidity called snow no, actually, um, you can have 60% humidity and below zero, and then it's too cold to snow. Oh, interesting. Wow. So it can't precipitate out of the air at that temperature. Yep. So what is huh. it, like ice fog or something, or just nothing? No, it, nothing. It, it's just cold. And then when you, it, as long as there's humidity in the air, it's not too bad. It's when there's no humidity, then the wind just cuts through you like daggers. Yeah, it makes your nose bleed and all that good stuff. Not me. I'm one of the lucky ones. I don't get nosebleeds, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of people that get them. I spent some time out in the desert, you know, uh, in West Texas. D- definitely not the cold, but the heat and the dryness and the zero percent humidity. Uh, that was the summer I learned I should not wear contacts in West Texas <laughs> um, because a contact lens at zero percent humidity is also known as a frito. Um, <laughs> I was going to say a glass shard in your eye. <laughs> it curls up and turns crunchy, and it's not pleasant at all. And there's not enough saline solution in the world to help. Oh. Just what do you do? Like put on swim goggles full of saline solution? <laughs> and just- <laughs> Dip your head in under the tub, then put the goggles on, and that'll, that'll keep the water pressed up against you for at least 10 minutes. Uh, I was going to say, what, do you get five minutes of relief out of that? <laughs> Uh, of course, up here right now, you'd have it frozen to your head, so... <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Um, I wanted to comment on the weather. Uh, again, I don't know what it's like anywhere else. I can only speak to Texas. But right now, it's uh, the high temperature tomorrow is supposed to be about 50. And so you're going to see people in parkas and scarves and big furry boots because it got down <laughs> to 50, okay? But in March... When it gets up to 50, they'll be in shorts and Hawaiian shirts. Um, it's exactly the same temperature, but it's just what you just came out of. See, when it's, when it was four degrees and we do get cold, uh, here, we just only for a couple of weeks instead of six months. Uh, but when you come out of it, it's exact same temperature. And it's funny because I have actually done this. I've taken pictures of people, um, like in November. And then again in March on, on the same, roughly the same temperature days and showed them the pictures and said, look at how you were dressed and look at the forecast because it's exactly the same. Is that the way it is up there in Montana as well? Um, yeah, kind of, but it's the whole, it's 30 degrees. It's still nice enough for, you know, sweatshirts and flip flops, regardless of what time of year it is. If it's, you know, and then when you start getting down to about 20, that's when the flip flops go away. Yeah. <laughs> well, Aaron, who's not here tonight, I have never seen him in long pants. Uh, never in my life. Doesn't matter how uh, cold got it married. is. He wears shorts. Well, I didn't make it to his wedding, and oh. uh, I'm still a little bitter about that. I was told <laughs> the wrong city, not the wrong address, the wrong city. Hmm. <laughs> um. Let's see. Uh, in the news, something I thought was interesting. Uh, 
researchers at, let me click the link because I don't remember, some university um, engineers from Northwestern McCormick School of Engineering and Applied Science, whatever that is, <laughs> have developed uh, a technique with the current lithium-ion batteries where they, they pit the lithium with lasers. Uh, and they make like little divots, not quite holes, but little divots. And apparently the electrons can rest inside those divots and you get uh, like 10 times the density of electrons on the same amount of lithium. But the the upside of that, what that means is they're saying that you'll have a cell phone battery that will charge in 10 minutes and will last three weeks. Wow. I wonder if that's like the golf ball principle. Uh, yeah, something like that. It's something they've been uh, playing with. But uh, the one of the downsides is that the recharge cycle is much lower. They say you can only get about 150 recharges out of a, a battery mm-hmm. done that way. But if your recharge lasts three weeks and it's 150 times three weeks, that's that's more than three years of battery. Who keeps a cell phone or even a laptop battery that long anyway? I mean, we we're we're accustomed to a battery dying after a year or a year and a half, but it's just way more cycles. You so, know, right. and if if they can make that battery at the same price, I don't mind it going out faster if I didn't have to mess with it that often. You know, it's like even if say I instead of lasting four years, it only lasts two, um, and if I could replace it with the for the exact same price that a regular one would cost, uh, I would be fine with that. Yeah, well, the what the researchers and what manufacturers who are looking into this are saying is that there's not going to be a this battery, that battery. That will just be the way we make lithium batteries from now on. And and just oh. Im- immediately you'll get a ten, ten times, uh, tenfold increase in performance, and it will recharge in one-tenth the time. Um, see, I have, you know, I've got a modern smartphone right now, and I get depending on what I do with it, between 8 and 14 hours out of it, and it charges in about 3 or 4 hours. Uh, they're saying 3 weeks with a 10-minute charge. That's darn impressive. Yeah. And, and that's really where we're going to have to go before technology can really go anywhere. We've got the processors. We've got the software. We've got you know multiple core chips on a postage stamp, uh, but we can't power them yet. Yeah. That's going to be cool. I can't wait for it. I mean, so much for uh, carrying around a power charger now. Yeah, I've, I've, I think I've said on this show before, but I've definitely said I keep a charger in my living room, in my bedroom, at my desk at work, and in my truck so that everywhere I go, I can be near electricity because uh, these batteries are just such power hogs. And I remember back in the old days when I had the big brick phone, the old cell phone, uh, it was that kind of thing. I got about an hour of talk time, and then I had to charge it. And so, you know, then I went through the cycle of my little tiny Nokia phone a few years ago uh, that would go a week, two weeks, three weeks on a charge, and I never really thought about it. Uh, but now I'm back to those old days because I've got, you know, a tricorder. It's not just a phone. It's, yeah. a, it's a computer. It's a, uh, I mean, a, a full desktop platform of just a few years ago, really. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's getting it's getting crazy. I mean, it's it's going to be interesting. You know what? Well, technology doubles every six months, right? So, what's the next? Uh, say the fourth flop from now, right? For batteries, it's that. Uh, well, Kurzweil, who we talked about on this show before, with his law of seven doublings. You know, uh, by the time we we may have doubled now, 
you know, seven doublings and, and the rate at which we're doing that, you know, again, he predicts the singularity, the point at which uh, we can't even recognize the world uh, as what it is today is probably within the next 50 or 60 years. Uh, so, and you know, we're on the cusp of something pretty big. And when you have, when you can have the power of like a, a quad or, or six core Tegra 2 chip running in your phone uh, and the juice to run it for three weeks on a charge, I mean, that's going to change everything. Yeah. yeah and, another uh, question is, is what's going to happen with uh, when pe- they have phones like that? I mean, are we just going to be playing Angry Birds faster? <laughs> yeah, well, that may be the case. Yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know. I think that, well, I've said that I've made this analogy before that in the early days of television, television shows were just radio shows with a camera in front of them. In the early days of the web, Websites uh, were just sort of like uh, uh, like a newspaper, really. You know, newspaper pages laid out. So I think we're in that place right now, where where the phones we have now are phones, and and we're figuring out we can play games on. We haven't yet figured out what to do with that technology, but I think mm-hmm. that time will come soon. And you know, the flood in Thailand that dis- apparently half the world's hard drive manufacturing capacity, phones might get a uh, a much faster adoption right now. Right. I was just tracking some of like how much hard drives you know they've doubled or more in the last couple of weeks. You used to could get a one terabyte hard drive for about fifty dollars. Now you probably can't find one for less than a hundred and fifty. Yeah, which is really probably going back to the price they should be. Hard drives have been artificially cheap for a while now. I mean, think about that. I just the other day uh, bought off of com slash Amazon a uh, uh, two terabyte external drive for 99 bucks. So, yeah. so 4750 uh, or whatever it is, 4950 per terabyte. That's artificially low. That's market forces driving things down. And so I think we're just this uh, Thailand situation and the la- lack of production is probably just forcing things to balance out more like they should be. Well, yeah, but the, now the question I have, though, is is the price jumping that we're seeing, is that artificially price jumping? Are we that starting to hit shortages already? Or is it just people gouging because they know the shortage is going to come and they're stockpiling for it? I think it's both. You right. know, there's there's less manufacturing right now, and so before all the inventory glut is gone, it's just going to uh, they're you know jacking the price up because the channel. Yeah, can I y'all think, hear me? Uh, I, yeah, I think in in part um, some of it is gouging, but also because things change so much in tech, uh, people keep a very limited supply of things on hand. People don't keep stock of you know. Uh, a month supply or two month supply of hard drives on hand, so uh, they sell out pretty quickly and have to buy. So I think it's probably a little of both. But there, you know, like the day the floods happen and prices jump thirty percent, that that was unquestionably gouging. Right. Is Chris still here? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. I just I thought I heard something drop for a second. No, it was. We're all here. Okay. Uh. So t- uh, <laughs> who put these uh? distro facts in there which one of you did that that was me all right tell us yeah. about it Seth. I just, well i was uh, i was reading a couple articles recently and i just thought it was interesting to note that of the 322 currently active linux distributions 216 are either direct or indirect De- debian derivatives so uh 
you know, it shows you that that, um, that particular distro has done a lot to shake the Linux community. And, you know, because, you know, you, you talk about, you know, there's Debian, Red Hat, and, you know, some of the other major ones, but realize that, you know, in a lot of ways, Debian is like the big daddy in the Linux world. Yeah. Uh, as as Debian, uh, as Ubuntu goes, so goes Debian, naturally, because right. every every release of of Ubuntu is based on Debian. But yeah, that's 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 interesting at that you have the root distro and then a spinoff of it and then people spinning off the spinoff. Um, yeah. Right. I, I don't really know what that means, but I do think it's interesting. Yeah. Um, actually, I'm going to add something in there, too, about distros. I'm going to put it in the show notes right now. Um, if you go over to DistroWatch right now, you can actually see um, who's got the most page hits for mm-hmm. um you know, uh, for the last six months. And it's interesting, though, that you're talking about a, a spinoff of a spinoff of a spinoff. The, you know, the, the Ubuntu is the, the child of Debian, and then Mint is the child of Ubuntu, and they're the number one list right now. Right. Which uh, it makes you wonder um, why the Ubuntu people are letting that happen. Why, why aren't they, you know, Shuttleworth is, is in this partly to make money. Uh, you know, partly it's altruistic and he wants the, the world to have an operating system, but he's also got, you know, a business side of it. Why doesn't he pay attention to some of these things that his derivatives are doing that are so popular and include those? Um, like, you know, the, the ever popular uh, uh, Unity interface, the ever unpopular Unity interface, he is sticking to that. And I think that's why that these derivatives are becoming popular because they're pulling out Unity and leaving uh, even GNOME 2 or, or in some cases GNOME 3 in there. Yeah. Um, I think part of it too goes like for the Mint side of the coin. Um, the guy who runs Mint, the Clem, uh, I can't think of how to say his last name, Def- Clem DeFell or something like that. I can't think of how it's pronounced, but he does a lot of things that add extras not just you know the codex or anything like that but like the usability interface like when you're on mint and you click the start menu you get a totally different menu than a gnome 2 menu the the updater is different it actually tells you which ones are safe to upgrade and which ones you know there's safe um you know semi-risky and then there's the risky updates they actually list those out in a in a a li- uh, one to five rating. Right. So I mean, I there's that. a that's pretty cool. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of things that Clem is doing that really makes sense, and I don't know why um, Shuttleworth or the U- Ubuntu people don't come to him and say, "Hey, we want to buy your ideas and put you in head of usability interface for Ubuntu." I think they're missing a boat with that. Well, and how much of it is you know because Linux is so open. And again, I don't know any of the people, but, you know, I'm in charge of this and look at what I get to do. No, you can't play with my toys. Um, I just wonder how much that happens. Well, any CEO or or powerful man uh, in a big company is going to have that sort of ego. And, and let's not forget that Shuttleworth made his money building a multi-billion dollar corporation. So, you know, he's got to have some of that. I'm right and you're wrong. And trust me, in the long run, you'll see it my way. Um. Yeah. To him, yeah. right. But yeah, the uh, and the Unity interface. Like I've been playing with uh, the latest Ubuntu on my netbook, 
and I really like it. it, it well, because I was using the uh, um, Netbook Remix, it's really almost the exact same interface. So, and since they want to go in the tablet market, I can see why they want uh, this uh, Unity to work out for them. Right. Yeah, it's. I'm going to keep repeating this phrase over and over again. It's the tabletification of the PC. Uh, yep. We want to create an interface that works on a tablet. And I personally think that's short-sighted. But then again, I couldn't help but notice nobody asked me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Microsoft <laughs> and Apple and, and Ubuntu, they, uh, they didn't ask me. So who can tell me what a teraflop is and why we care? Uh, that was just a quote on a story that... Um I, there's this article. It's called like the five tech, five top tech quotes of the week, and uh, there were just a couple of really cool quotes. This is from the general manager of Intel's technology computing group. Apparently, the Knight's corner chip, something I've never heard at, never heard of. When they unveiled it, he said, "You're witnessing the one teraflop barrier busting," and that's just a, an insanely large number that I really can't comprehend. So. Uh, but it was just seemed like a really cool, almost like a Star Trek moment. Yeah, and uh, flop is a floating operation per second. So yep. that's uh, a, a basically a calculation. So a teraflop is one trillion calculations per second. Floating point mathematical calculation per second. That's, that's a lot. A lot. <laughs> Yeah. So uh, Intel says that their new chip can do that, can do better than one teraflop. Um, once again, what happens in six or seven years when that's in your phone uh, with a battery that can, can run it for a month at a time? Right. Powerful stuff, man. I mean, yeah, you know, think about the technology that we walk around with now and think about the technology they had when we went to the moon. It's like, Nothing, you know, the computer was all these switches you had to manually activate. You know, you have a, if anybody has a wristwatch anymore, it probably has more memory than what was on those computers that took us to the moon. Right. Unless you're an old timer like me who still has a dialed Swiss watch. You're rocking <laughs> the, the Swiss uh, quartz action, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a Christmas gift from last year. It's still ticking. Which is impressive for me. Well, I think that's interesting because uh, your watch there, uh, for people who can't see it, is a, is a very large ornate piece of jewelry. And I think, and and Seth made the comment, if you still wear a watch, we're inundated with time. Every display has a clock on it. You know, our phones have them, our computers have them, uh, coffee makers have them. Yeah, everywhere you go, there's a clock. So there's really not a lot of need to wear a watch. And I think that maybe it's going to go back to being a piece of jewelry. For a long time there, particularly when the cheap digital watch came out in the in the late seventies, early eighties, um, it became a utilit utilitarian device. Um, yep. But I think now it's going to go back more to the piece of jewelry uh, that you wear just to have something. I know I wear my Timex Iron Man that I've had since high school, um, <laughs> and it's you know it's for me it's a utilitarian device. I look at my watch a thousand times a day, uh, yep. just because I do. Um, and I don't, I couldn't really imagine being without it, but I know most geeks today that that's the, the wristband is what they wear or a bracelet. They don't need a watch because they've got so many devices that tell them what time it is. Yeah. It's, it's interesting though. Cause, uh, when 
when I first got that this watch, um, everyone kept asking me, why am I wearing a watch? Everything has a clock. And it's like, well, I would feel naked without it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, yeah. once again, we get back to the fact that Chris may or may not be wearing pants. Uh, this show seems to return to that theme far too often. <laughs> I could stand up and prove you guys all want right or wrong, though. Um, that would take the mystery out. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm frankly a little afraid of what I might see because <laughs> some things once seen cannot be unseen. That's Amen. right. There's not enough bleach in the world to <laughs> sanitize your eyes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the latest uh, Apple uh, propaganda, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm characterizing it as that, says that uh, the Android market uh, malware is up 472% in the last five months. Yeah. No comment on I, that. Saw it. Uh, I just thought it was a, you know, I just like the way he worded it. What happens when anyone can develop and publish an application to the Android market? A 472% increase in Android malware samples since July 2011. Um, yeah, and it's from Juniper, but. Yeah, their thing that what bothers me is the percentage. Anytime somebody says 400%, they're right. trying to shock you with the number. Yeah. Okay, yep. so if it was eight and now it's 32, that's a 400% increase. But right. it's thirty-two out of two hundred thousand. So right. you know, tell us what the real number is, and they're not going to do that because it's ridiculously low. Yeah, you know, and their whole point was actually it wasn't so much like you should switch to Apple. It was Google should take some type of action to clean up because if it gets to the point to where everything is malware infested, who's going to want to take the time to weed through things and find out if they're if they're trustworthy or not. So, um, you know, and he was talking about how Google rakes in more money through advertising than even the developers make. Yeah. Um, anyway, it was just, uh, you know, just an interesting quote to uh, go in our little warm-up section. I saw a great comic. I, I can't remember where it was to give credit for it, but it was the problem with star rating systems as, um, as feedback. And so it had this, uh, like, Bob's Tornado Warning app. And it was like five stars, beautiful app, works flawlessly, really nice. Uh, four stars, really pretty, has a minor uh, problem with installing, but works really great. And and it's like four or five things there. And then there was one of them that said one star, did not let me know tornado was coming. But <laughs> but it was like 70% positive right, uh, results because everybody else had used it and critiqued it because it was pretty or because it installed flawlessly. And the one guy who actually had something to say got dropped to the bottom. And if you've ever looked at Amazon ratings, that's often what that is. It's like people will say, I just ordered this, and I think it's going to be so cool. Five stars. What? What kind of review is that? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you don't even know with those, you know, if it's one star, how do you know a competitor didn't right. do that just to trash them or they didn't pay someone to give themselves a good review? Or, or a lot of the reviews you know, will say, I just took it out of the package and it looks really sweet and it works really well. How many people take the time? And, and I'm, you know, I'm pointing at myself here to go back a year after you've bought something and review it and give some salient reviews. And if you do, Chris is raising his hand. <laughs> if you do that, how does your one review get brought out of the mass of, of idiot reviews? I'm not well, a big fan of reviews. Yeah, because then unfortunately, if you wait a year, nobody's going to read your review because nobody's buying it anymore. They've went on to the next shiny bobble <laughs> yeah. 
to drain their bank account dry and then they can gripe about why they don't have any money because they have every iPhone known to man sitting there. But it's the rich people that are ruining the country and why don't I have any disposable income? So welcome to everyday politics. Yeah, occupy <laughs> Apple. Yeah. Something. Yeah. See, I don't wait a year to go back and review any of my purchases. It's usually within three or four three to four, three to six weeks after I've owned it. Because most of the time, anything that you buy that's electronic is going to fail in that three to five weeks on average. Um, right. If it fails, yeah. Yeah, it's going to fail in the infant death syndrome of electronics, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's why I always go back and review. And I get pushed and poked from Amazon to do it faster and faster, but right. I stick at my guns and wait. Um, but to go on to about malware, um, I noticed that F-Secure, the... the Antivirus company, they find some malware that has been digitally signed with a stolen certificate from a comp from a, a government. So I mean, that's starting to get spooky. If they can steal certificates from a government, and this is Malaysia, so I don't know how much secure they put around their their government level certs, but who can you trust now? You well, know, honestly, yeah. I mean, if, if you remember, we talked to uh, before about the. Uh, um, DigiNotar, where they they were handing out bogus certificates. The whole web of trust that we have right now, uh, the trouble is it's too big. You have to trust too many people. Um, And even with with the Android market, you have to digitally sign your stuff. You have to say, I created this. But who looks at that, right? I mean, when I download an app, I'm not looking at a digital cert. Uh, Google has some recourse with that, right? Because it's signed and they can go back and they can know who did it. Uh, but for the most part, all they can do is remove the app and block the user. Uh, yeah. Who can spend what is it, one hundred fifty dollars, I think, and start over again. Um, yeah, and, right around there, depending on who you cert with. Right. Um, and of course, with side loading, you don't have to go through the Google uh, Marketplace at all. I mean, you can yeah. go right to a website and download something. And yeah. I have done that. You know, I have gone to a website and downloaded an app and cir- uh, circumvented the market. Um, but, you know, I tried to do my research and tried to make sure it was a smart thing first. But, you know, who's to say I was right? I mean, fortunately, my phone hasn't blown up or the, the feds haven't come arrested me for kitty porn yet. Uh, but uh, who's to say it couldn't happen? Yeah. But somehow $1 got removed from your bank account and you just don't <laughs> know how yet. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah. If I balance my checkbook like I was supposed to, I might notice these things. There you go. Uh, okay, what's next on the list there? Is that is that it for news? Uh, other than we need to have more people to come check out Periodic Table, that's about it for the news. I mentioned that already, so do that. Okay, so we'll get right on with uh, uh, Fedora 16, and Chris, our Fedora ambassador, is going to talk. Uh, uh, Chris, just first looks. Uh, let's just talk about like your first impressions when you booted it up. How did it compare to Fedora 15, which you hated? The problem I have with Fedora 15, and, the, and it's still around for the fourth for Fedora 15 or 16 is that um, there's a bug in the way um, the Linux handles my advanced power controls. So right now when I boot up into any of the Fedora and any, actually it's, it's since it's in the kernel, it's on every version of Linux. When I boot up, it automatically dials down my processor and my drive speed and everything to the absolute bottom rung. And it makes the system almost unusable. So this isn't a, anything against the uh, the distros. It's the way the kernel is currently. 
and they have improved that. It's getting better, but it's not perfect yet. With that, um, I did go through Fedora 15 again on my on my other test machine before I reviewed 16 to take a look at the two, and there really isn't a whole lot of differences between the two. Um, it's prettied up for which is what they normally do between the two from release to release. It, they fix some bugs here and there. The biggest thing that I noticed that they did is they moved from Grub 1 to Grub 2. I noticed that right away, um, which doesn't give a whole lot to people that don't play with bootloaders, but uh, we can go over bootloaders at a different show. That's right. We actually <laughs> had that show scheduled, and it's been pushed off, but uh, I will say I don't like Grub 2, and I don't like the move to Grub 2 because it um, makes things a lot more difficult to work with and as far as I can tell, it doesn't really give much benefit. It just it it's just harder to do, but not really any more functional. I think the main reason they want to move that everyone's being pushed in Grub Two is because of the fact that the the pointers for the newer file systems don't exist in Grub One, and so there's a lot of backhanded and re recoding of Grub in order to get like. The, the native boot of ext4 that doesn't happen in grub one you actually have a sub uh, ext3 before you boot into grub into ext4 so that's a lot of the reason there is that since they're tr everyone's trying to move to ext4 or newer like butter fs um, there is nothing in but in grub that will boot butter so they have to move to grub two and really, I think my complaint is a geek complaint only, because how many people really mess with a bootloader? Um, you know, it's very rare. Uh, I think I, I uh, made a comment about bootloaders, and Seth said his bootload editor is uh, G-parted. He just simply repartitions yep. the drive when he needs to, to fix the boot sector. Uh, but if you dual boot your machine, if you got Windows and uh, Linux on it, um, well... Anyway, we'll save this for another show. I'm not a fan of Grub2 because they have not um, made it as user serviceable as Grub1. And and I, I suspect that's by design. I think that they want it to not be user serviceable. Well, yeah, I think it's... I was going to say, the, the way I always look at it is, is Grub2 is supposed to be the appliancification of the boot system. Right. They don't want you to be monkeying with the bootloader any more than you, you're supposed to do it with your refrigerator. Oh, your microwave. So. And, you know, that's it. That's the way the PC world is going, is to the appliance model. Yeah. And those of us who, who you know, want to be a shade tree mechanic and lament the fact that we can't take apart a fuel injector feel the same way. You know, as things get more and more removed from the end user, uh, some people will be frustrated. Most people won't notice. Yeah. Yeah. Do we want Linux to break out of the 1% market share? Uh, or, uh, or do we want to be able to go in and edit the bootloader anytime we want? It's well, almost like you can have one, but not both. I See, I don't believe that. I think you can do both. I think you can make it functional and still user serviceable. Uh, well, and it, that may come because right now Grub2 is still pretty infant. I mean, in comparison to Grub... Grub 2 is still probably, what, only two years old, three years old, as far as I remember. So, I mean, you know, we're still on the really young side of Grub 2. I mean, it, it may, you know, once it hits 
four years old, it may all of a sudden blossom and you all really love Grub too. And what the heck is that Grub and Lilo? What are those? You know, I mean, well, we may, we may end up there. And that brings us to the point that, that I was going to make about the fact that, uh, Fedora 16 is just, a a small upgrade to Fedora 15 from the end user land. There, there might've been a lot of things that happened under the hood, but we, we're in that point right now. We've made the big change to Gnome 3 and, and, and we've made the big changes and now everything is just polishing for the next yep. several episodes, probably up to Fedora 21 or 22 is going to be just polishing and then they'll break something, right? And the Linux community will say, curse you, Fedora! Um, and then they'll polish and polish and polish and polish and then they'll break something again. That's just the way open source tends to work. Yeah, and that's usually well, how Well, I mean, does. that's the way that's the way Windows worked. You know, 95, humongous change. 98, polished, ME, attempt to polish. Uh, but XP, all, I mean, if you could use 95, you know, everything through XP looked the same. It wasn't until Vista came that they really broke stuff. Yeah, and, and de- developers are still having a hard time with that. They totally rewrote right. the service model and they rewrote the security model. And when did Vista come out? Uh, 2000. Six, something like that. So uh, five, six years ago, uh, and developers still don't know how to handle it, and so that's what bothers me about making those foundational changes. Is that it can really rock uh, the community in a way that the end user who just wants a web browser doesn't really understand. I mean, the businesses right now are still rocking to the uh, XP yeah. because their stuff doesn't work on it, and. You know, uh, schools uh, are still using XP and, and will for a while. And everybody who makes the change, because eventually you have to make the change, has to give up something or rewrite something or start over again in something. And I've got some things at my workplace that just don't work and can't work and will never work with Vista. And we have yet to find a suitable replacement for it. And so that yeah. that's frustrating. And I think that's where we're looking at with, with these big changes to, you know, away from X11, for example, when that's going to happen in the near future. Um, that's going to be scary. Yeah. It's going to break a whole lot of things. And, you know, it may take 10 years to get back to where we were. And that's frustrating. Oh, let's hope not. You have to wonder why, why waste 10 years, right? Uh, yeah. But like you said, like, for example, in Grub, it can grow no farther. You have to yeah. get to something that can grow. But then you got to do the whole growing pains thing all over again. Yep. And I honestly think that Grub 2 it will be a good step. I just think it was a premature step. I agree. To get, you know, to finish Grubs off. Um the next thing I noticed was a big change in how Vert Manager works. And if you don't know what Vert Manager is, um it's the built-in virtualization that's in the kernel already. Um Red Hat pioneered this technology it's it's also another way they use um zen if you've heard of zen virtualization um it's they have that built into the kernel right now so like people that use virtualbox or vmware fusion or vmware products that's an extra level of cruft that you don't need because vert manager if your processor supports it which if you have a processor that came or a machine that comes with Vista or 7, you probably do. Um, the codes are already there. You just have to add these extra tools to access that stuff. Um, when I was playing with Vert Manager, I actually moved uh, most of my virtual machines to the Zen 
Uh, it's a KVM Cumo or something like that is what they call the actual package. And it actually performs, it outperforms VirtualBox in all my testings. So just in bare crunching of, of you know, accessing the processor, VirtualBox was down, you know, not a lot, but it was still enough that if it's in something that's, you know, a data center of some form, you know, Vert Manager would be a good place to go. Um, a home user, I don't think it's ready for the home users yet for if you're going to test, you know, new distributions or if you want to play, have a Linux and then virtualize your, your Windows OS, I don't think it's ready for you. But one of the things that I noticed right away um, is the ability to do a live migration built into Vert Manager. So that's taking a play out of virtual or not virtual box, but VMware. VMware. Right. And this is all built into your system for free. Yeah. And and describe a live migration for people who may not know what that means. Um, if you're going from one, if you need to move a virtual machine from one machine to another, but you can't have any downtime, that's what a live migration will be for. Um, you can literally change from one machine, the one virtual system and then move it to another physical hardware and virtualize it the exact same way. And there's almost, you lose what, half a second between, if even? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a, it's a pretty cool process that VMware makes you pay for uh, with yep. their V-Motion, I think they call it. Yeah. Uh, so to have that and uh, built right in is, is pretty cool. And just a, a programming note, uh, Chris and Seth are both breaking up really badly. It's not their fault. My ISP is sort of hiccuping tonight, and so it's their connection to me. So don't blame them for it. Okay. You can still blame us, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I said, I was, I've been moving, Man, I've been moving my, my main virtual machines to vert manager since I'm now running a, a machine that ha- can handle. Um, I think I got a, the machine that I'm running it all on is, you know, a, a dual Xeon core, dual Xeon chipped. I think there's 32 gigs of Ram in it. It's a monster. So, I'll be running. I'll be running four or five different VMs, heavy load VMs, without a problem on it. So, is the Vert Manager? Um, is that kind of like how um, Windows says if you use Hyper V, you get better performance than if you use like VM Player because Hyper V is already built into the OS, and so you're not adding that layer. Is it? Um, is that kind of the same thing? Um, I would say yeah. Um, okay. Because, like I said, the, the the keys are already there. You're just activating the this the way it works. So I don't think there's anything there that you know. It's that whole proprietary thing. Yeah, okay. it's it's the difference between a hypervisor and a virtualizer. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, V Vert Manager is a hypervisor, which. Uh, it's kind of hard to explain. It's still in software, but it uses lots of direct hardware access instead yeah, of running as, everything through the OS first. Yeah, it's as close to bare metal as you can be. Right. Um, and like uh, Zen, for example, is not something you run on a desktop. You run a Zen, Zen. client, and that's it. That is the OS of the machine. Uh, is that the case of Vert Manager, or does it run inside the desktop of Fedora? It runs inside. Right, so um, that's it, that's if not unique, definitely unusual that you have a hypervisor that's running as close to bare hardware as possible, but still within a a graphical desktop environment. Which is why it runs so much faster. Um, they also have a 
most of the virtualizing machines use some sort of remote desktop type of connection to them, be it VNC or RDP or something proprietary to actually see the desktop. Um, Vert Manager has a VNC connection, so I mean that's kind of normal. But they do have something that's kind of unique to Vert Manager that I haven't seen in any other virtualizing system where you can actually install the Spice plugins. Um, Spice is a system that's similar to RDP, but shares the load between, like if you're doing, you wouldn't really want Spice on a on a virtual machine that you're only accessing at the machine you're on. But if you're on a, another Fedora machine connecting to that virtual client with Spice, the load is shared between the two for processing. So like in RDP, the load is on the server, not on the client, where with Spice, the load is shared. So I wish I would have found the link, but there's been testing where they actually have, um, they put RDP, Spice, and then I think um, Citrix side by side to see which ones can handle what before they start to fall on their head. And Spice is able to do everything up to playing a Blu-ray. Wow. Um, without breaking up. So it's it's really cool tech. Um, it's still kind of young. And I, the only place I've ever seen it is, on, is in Fedora. So that's kind of a neat thing that they got really, they're starting to hammer that down really well. Yeah, and for at least for now, Citrix is the gold standard of remote desktop. So when yep. you get something that outperforms that which is considered the state of the art, that's pretty impressive. Of course, that's a, a very specific set of circumstances, too. It's got to be a virtualized machine. you got to be accessing it on the right hardware with the right software. But still, it's a good first step. Well, the way I always look at it is like, you know, Mark, you're using what you call fat clients in some of your your labs. So if you had Spice running on those, being able to Spice your virt into a virtual machine, you would get native performance almost on everything that you'd be doing except for viewing a Blu-ray a Blu-ray movie. Right, and full motion video in uh, a remote desktop environment is yeah. sort of the acid test uh, because it's difficult to do. Yeah, and it works. Um, everyone started, all the other products started to choke at the DVD, you know, like RDP chokes on... DVD level or below DVD, um, Citrix starts to choke out on DVDs and then Blu-rays when Spice choked out, which was really impressive when I watched it. If I can find the link without, you know, burning a night looking for it, I'll put it in the show notes. All right. It's really impressive to find it or to see that side by side. Cool. Uh, yeah. Um, and now into the desktop environments. Um, I really didn't get a much chance to play with KDE since I was sick for, you know, six days last week. Um, but what from what whiner. I was, what a yeah, boo hoo hoo. I know I was sick, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, um, they are running 4.7, which if you're the upgrading, um, because a lot of the bugs that are in 4.4 and 4.5 and 4.6 are all squashed. Um, there's almost no bugs that I saw that were old bugs that have continued through at least none of the, the big blaring ones. Um, like I'm running 4.5 right now on my, on my laptop. And there's a couple of hiccups that just drive me crazy with, uh, the way the display manager works. I'll get some artifacting here and there. And it, it's, it's the, the, it's KDE joking on something and I don't know what it is. So if you're running KDE, 
and you're running Fedora and you're on the fence about waiting, go ahead and go. It's worth it. Um, on to the big thing that everyone has been that has ever played with is GNOME 2 or GNOME 3.2. When Fedora 15 came out, I I said that you know it was broken. Don't even bother because 3.0 for GNOME was horrible. At this point, 3.2 for GNOME is usable. Um, there's a lot of fixes that they've done. They've broken a few of the things that you had to use in GNOME 3.0 in order to to get some of the, the extra features. Um, some of the some of them are broken, some of them aren't. So it's one of those hit and miss for the little tweaks to get those to work. Like if you wanted, uh, uh, in, in let's see, in 3.2, the little desktop extras on the on the right. If you're switching virtual desktops. In 3.0 and 3.1, you could install an extra uh, package that would leave that desktop thing on the side. It would be minimized, but it would be on the side. That doesn't work right now, but you really don't need it because the little it, it actually, the switching of the desktops works now. Um, I, I, I would love to see how the marketing meeting went with that. GNOME 3.2, now it's usable. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, 15% it, it, less crap than no. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really nice. The other thing that I, 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 Seth, did you put this in about GNOME, the, the fallback support? Yes. Or is that you, Mark? Okay. That was the me. fallback support, the fallback support to a GNOME 2 style works really well. Um, there's almost no hiccups to switch back and forth. Um, and it's as simple as if the card is automatically detected that it doesn't work, that it can't support the 3D effects. It automatically reverts you to the two, the GNOME 2 style. Um, and then if you do upgrade your card's drivers and it does now support, you can, um, there's a little slider box that you can say, I want the GNOME 3 effects or I want the GNOME 2, the GNOME 3 fallback style. And then you can bounce between them almost seamlessly. Yeah, they um, on the review I read, it's like you can go to system settings, system info, graphics, and then just enable forced fallback mode. Yep. So it's just like simple as box check. Another great marketing meeting. Hey, we know it sucks. Let's make it easy to go back. Well, yeah, yeah. Windows 7, they were so apprehensive. Gave you a VFD. A VM, that's right. We'll, we'll give you XP uh, with a license included because we know Vista sucks so much. Or 7, yeah. I mean. Well, and then you, you also have the point where, you know, 3.2 is still really young. You know, it, it's made a pretty bunch of big jumps between 3.0 and 3.2. So we're at, what, a less than nine months from the 3.0 release? And they already consider it 3.2? So what's going to, you know, the next one will probably be at 3.5. So what's that one going to be? I would almost say by 3.5, we'll be, people won't be asking for the GNOME 2 interface anymore. Uh, I think there'll be enough changes in the market, in the desktop market, that you won't even notice the difference between GNOME 2 and GNOME 3 anymore. You, you won't care. So here's my question. Why not wait till it gets to that before you move to it? Well, because you have the early adopters that are going to find all the bugs for you. Well, that's fine. You can do that. Uh, you can make that an option. But why make that your flagship product when you know it doesn't work? Uh, there's got to be some reason for it because so many people do it so many times down throughout history. And maybe that is that you can never do it until you make a million people mad at you. Um, yeah, you you just don't have enough data. But well, you just want to be first to market. 
you know, that's got to be it. You know, we can't let someone else beat us, so we have to get this out there. But it doesn't work. It doesn't matter. We've got to do it first. Right. So, you know, that's got to be a lot. I'd almost, yeah, I would almost bet that's a lot of it, too, is, you know, everyone was pushing, saying, well, we're going to be the first one with 3-0 on the market. And Fedora was the one that actually did it. You know, a lot of people backpedaled at the last minute saying, no, there's a too many showstopper bugs. And then they back back, they backpedaled out. But Fedora, they were like, yeah, we're putting 3.0 on the desktop. We're putting it out now. And they did. So, you know, you got to at least stand behind a company that's, you know, if they say they're going to do it, they did it. Yeah. The only bug I really, you know, I, I shouldn't say bug. The only really glitch that I, it's not even a glitch. Why do I keep saying these weird words? <laughs> The the one thing I really have a hard time with Fedora is their thought process about not including any way of putting like Codex or Flash or anything like that built into the system easily. It's too complicated. Um, and I even found there's a program out there that makes installing those extras easier, but it's still not it's still not easy enough for the basic users. So it's I know it's their their whole thought process to you know we're going to be free as in open source not free as in free beer so but in in that thought process you're pushing a lot of people out of the distribution because you're not going to have the first time users you're not going to have you know uh, grandma running Fedora you're going to have grandma running Mint or something that has a little more ease of use. Um, so I would say Fedora is not for the, the faint of heart, but it's not for, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Fedora has always aimed itself at more the business user than the home user. Uh, they, they tried, I think, around, you know, six or seven to help reverse that trend, but then they sort of realized this isn't the right DNA and kind of went back to being the, the egghead distribution. And that's okay. You know, we need that. Um, and I just wanted to uh, read a shout out in the chat room. Element 657 says, I have nothing to say today, but you guys rock. I'm a new Linux user and you guys have made this an amazing experience. So not only did we get some feedback, but it was awesome feedback. Thank, thanks, man. I'm assuming you're a man since like 99.95% of our listeners are. And the others are our wives. <laughs> So, uh, any other closing thoughts on um, Fedora 16? It's a worth it's a worthwhile upgrade. If you're a Fedora user, you know, bite the bullet, back up your home directory, and just go for it. Well, Chris, um, if you if you didn't make the jump to 15 because we panned it so badly, and you're still on 14, is it worth you're forced going, to. if you're is it worth going on ahead and upgrading? Yeah. Well, at that point, I would actually clean install. Because you're jumping a you're jumping a version number, so I would do a clean install if you're going from 14 up. Um, I, because you're gonna have to download all the different changes to 15, and then you'd have to download all the different changes to 16 up to to move up to 16. And yeah, I know Fedora uses the Presca or Presto packaging, so you only download the deltas. But even then, you're you're talking a pretty big chunk of downloading. Well, but my question was in terms of do you get a functionality worth upgrading? I mean, is it or should we keep waiting? Should we sit on 14 a little longer? I would move. Okay. All right. That that's it. So Chris says you have to move. So get to <laughs> it right now. Uh Chris, do you have a command line tip for us this week? 
No, I don't. I've been fighting the sickies all in my house, so I didn't get a chance to find you a command line. Um, so I'm being lazy this week. Okay, I'll give you a command line tip. The up arrow. <laughs> it's very useful. And a lot of people, amazingly, a lot of people don't know about it. The up arrow will scroll through the last few commands that you've typed uh, uh, for as long as you've been logged into that session. So if, you, if you're in the process of constantly uh, running the same command, maybe you're troubleshooting something or testing something and you keep typing the same command, up arrow. It's a wonderful yep. tool. Or just bang, bang. <laughs> yeah. I tried that the other day and it didn't work. I, I hit bang, bang, enter, and the system went, huh? Really? Yeah. I was on uh, either CentOS or Ubuntu. I don't remember which, but it, it didn't didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, it's, it's probably Cent, because I don't think CentOS handles bang, bang. Okay. So that might have been the one. Those, those are the two things I use most at work. So uh, it was on one of those two things. But uh, yeah, I was like, ooh, ooh, I get to try Chris's command because I can pseudo now and because I forgot to. And then it was like, huh? What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> <laughs> Seth, what is our end user tip of the week? Juice and lots of it. <laughs> no, uh, this is, um, you know, like I have been looking around for something because I like what iTunes does. I just don't like how it does it. So uh, on a Windows machine, I was just like, you know, I I would like to have something other than just an RSS thing to go. Oh, look, there's a podcast and go download it. So Juice can like download and catch all your podcasts, and it is uh, Windows, Mac, and Linux, and even free BSD. So um, it's uh, it's the Juice receiver, and you can find it on SourceForge. A link is in the show notes, and I am going to be trying it out this week. And so I can say next week, hey, it is good, or, you know, I'll never use that garbage again. But, uh, you know, if you, like, if you like the concept of being able to catch your podcast on your computer, but you don't want to trash it by installing iTunes, which, you know, iTunes will just ruin your Windows machine. Uh, <laughs> And it won't even work on, and it won't work well on Linux. So give Juice a try. All right. And Chris, I, I can see it in the notes. You've already mentioned it before, but I, you're chomping at the bit to do it again. So tell us about am, your favorite. My favorite podcatcher is Miro. It's cross-platform. It handles everything. Um, I really like it a lot. GetMiro.com, and you will too. Here's what I want, and I've never found anything that comes close to it. I want a player that either is on both my phone and my desktop or can communicate between the two so that if I start a uh, podcast on my desktop and I get 26 minutes in and pause it and I pick up my phone, I want it to pick up at 26 minutes on that. I want it to share not only the same RS set of RSS feeds, oh, wow. but know where I was. And it would be great if there was a, a web component too so I could listen on a web page or something like that. I, I don't. I can't imagine that would be terribly difficult to code, but it sure would be helpful. They actually, the like um, the iCloud, which you know it's Apple, but Ubuntu One, you can you can do some of that with them. I don't know if it's everything you're hoping it will be, but you can at least do some of it with them. See what what I end up doing is I listen to podcasts on the crappy mono speaker of my phone at work when I've got a 5.1 surround sound system at my desk. Because it's too difficult, because I run in and out a lot, and I know that my phone is always going to be in the right place. If I could listen to something good uh, on my PC with the good sound system I have there, and then 
pause it and have it jump. Like, you know, Kindles do that. They know what page you're on. Um, and they just need, somebody needs to do that. Or if it's out there, if you're listening and you know of something like that, tell me what it is. Give us some feedback on that. And I, I don't care if it's a paid app. I'm a, a notorious tightwad, but I will pay, you know, 30 or $40 for that. That would make my life, uh, much better. Well, okay, somewhat better, but, uh, I'd love to have that. Yeah, I will second that. Um, the whole reason I've gone to Miro is because it was just simpler for me to catch on my podcast. But if I had something that would catch everywhere, um, I'd be all for that too. I'd even I would pay for that. And I'm a Linux guy who doesn't pay for anything. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're a, a mobile apps developer out there or know somebody who is, there's a money making idea for you because those of us who are big into our podcast, uh, and I don't care if I have to manually feed it, you know, a list of my podcast. I'm fine with that. But it's got to have an embedded player. And it's got to have an embedded player on both my desktop, my Windows desktop, and my Android handset. So, you know, it's not exactly an easy thing, uh, but if you could do that, that would be awesome. I think the only problem they'd probably have is getting the cross-platform. You well, know, going from... Probably going what you'd from, have to use, you'd have to use the native player on whatever platform it is. Every every platform has a native uh, media player, and you just have to track where it is. And all, all you'd have to send back is the location information and feed that to whatever the native player is. Yeah. But I think, I think the problem you'd run into is trying to get, because of going from your Windows player, unless you had some way of, of maybe embedding VLC into the program. Yeah. Because VLC is, is cross-platform, so maybe you could get it that way. But going from like Android, Linux to Windows, you're talking three different players in that they all would take in the, the time data difference. So that would be tricky. But if you could embed a player yeah. into the app, that might be better. Yeah. I'm not a coder. I'm just a whiner. Uh, I would <laughs> like for somebody to make it happen. We will make it tightwad and element or uh, element OP and everyday Linux approved if you guys can get it across to all of them. Hey, and while we're <laughs> on the subject, again, if you're a mobile uh, app coder or know somebody who is and would like to donate some time to make an element OP app, we would love to have that. Uh, there are places out there that will do that, but remember, we're poor and we can't afford to pay for it. And uh, I don't really have the time to learn to code just to do that. But it would be great to be able to have like all of our podcasts, for example. Um, of course you could, you could do that anyway, but to have our podcasts and our forums and all that stuff in one little place that we could update it and maybe have some, some special content where, you know, we have a picture of Chris with no pants and that only goes to the app <laughs> or something like that. But anyway, if anybody out there is interested in that, even if it's not very good, you know, that's okay. It's better than the zero that we have now. But if you want to let us know about that or you want to uh, uh, ask other questions or make other comments, the place you can do that, since we don't have an app, is at our website at elementop.com. And that's where you can find out everything there is to know about Chris and about Seth and about me. Uh, well, not really, but that's at least where you can contact us. Uh, there's a, even a contact us button at the top of the page where you can send us an email or you can go to the forums and make a post and, and uh, let your voice be heard to all of the Element OP public, all of the everyday Linux uh, throngs of listeners out there, and uh, you can uh, join the conversation there. We have had some uptick in communication there, and that's been great. It's been good to see that um, uh, community involvement go there. You can also find us on Twitter, twitter.com slash element OP, or Facebook, facebook.com slash element OP, or if you want to give us a call, 559-IMOP. Or again, just go to our website and click the leave us a voicemail button. Google Voice will, will call you. You don't even have to do anything. But do answer because it'll 
say a number like from Van Nuys, California or something, but go ahead and answer it because you just you told just it to. Told um, um, and But anyway, uh, that we would love to hear from you uh, there at elementop.com. Guys, anything else to say before we say goodnight? Try Linux. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Seth, anything from you? Uh, no. Great show, everybody. Um, <laughs> I don't have a lot to say. All right. Well, uh, Seth is filling in the Sean Kybel role of, of blessing us with the great show. So uh, without further ado, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. And that ends this episode of Everyday Linux. Everyday Linux.